Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. Don't you go bragging about how much you've seen, you haven't seen a thing. Don't even waste my time with anecdotes from Jackson's home. Yeah, All right. Um, so continuing on, we were talking, this is where we were, we were talking about some of the key concepts and terms, and I think, I hope you noted, and I know I did, that the, most of these things happen in classical conditioning and in, or a lot of them are in classical conditioning and in uh, Habituation. Some of them are specific to the discriminative stimulus and the free term contingency clearly are about operant conditioning. But the idea of acquisition, extinction, spontaneous recovery, generalization, those happen in every kind of learning we've talked about. So there are certain rules that happen in every kind of learning. This is one of the things that led people to believe there was only, say, one kind of learning, which is probably a silly question, a silly statement, really. Uh, but there are certainly cases with overlap. There's no argument there. Um, you can see here that a lot of times we really use some condition reinforcements. As I said, you know, you're using classical conditioning to do operant conditioning, nothing wrong with that. And we ended up by talking about response chains. The idea of having a whole bunch of responses in a row, and this can actually lead to very complicated behavior. Very complicated to locate behavior, I should say. Okay? Questions about that? That's what we left off last time. All right. Now, we've talked before about constraints on learning, we talked about the constraints on Pavlovian commissioning, and we talked about, um, what else did we talk about? I talked about, it's like I'm in kindergarten, and then, and then we talked about, and then I talked about case uh, versions, right? Well, the first thing that comes to mind when you talk about constraints on operant conditioning is the stuff, and I talked about this, I believe, earlier on in the course, is the stuff that Breland did, Breland did, husband and wife did, uh, did their PhDs, I believe, with Skinner, and then instead of becoming poorly paid overworked academics, they decided they wanted the world of advertising. It was, after all, the early 60s and the era, era of Mad Men. I just thought I'd throw that part in. They didn't want to advertise. What they did is they made, they trained animals to do advertising display. That's a different time. This is back when people drank and smoked in their offices. In a more civilized time. <laughs> um, early 60s, late 50s, and what they would do and this is, was, a, was a thing that, it's gone away. I remember seeing it a little time when I was a kid, where in, in storefronts, you would actually have displays, right? And they'd be less, much more um, elaborate than you see now, because, of course, people couldn't buy Google ads back then, so they had to do something to advertise themselves. And these are the folks that were training. They would train animals to do little tricks and stuff at people's storefronts, right? So, and they trained, remember I talked about the raccoon, and the pig to put money in the piggy bank, right? And the raccoon learns it, but eventually stops doing it and starts taking the little fake coin and putting it in and taking it, but never dropping it, right? And then taking it and sort of washing it. With the pig, the pig dropping it in the piggy bank, the pig did this for a while, learned it, 
they were, you know, they enforced them. They were good at this. But then eventually, it just starts rooting around with its nose. It was like a toy coin. They called this instinctive drift. And to show you how, how, how ubiquitous, the idea of equal potentiality, the idea that you can teach any animal anything, they uh, entitled their study into this the misbehavior of organisms. Yes, the animals are misbehaving because they're acting like their species acts. It's a pretty, I think that's kind of a telling title. Um, this was in the early 60s. Uh, people accepted this, that this was the case. So it turned out, you know, you can't teach every animal everything. And this is uh, around the same time that uh, Chomsky had criticized uh, Skinner for saying that language was all offered conditioning. Right? And then Chomsky decided to become a political commentator. Um, Auto-shaping was another one. Auto-shaping is this idea, if you give an animal, so a pigeon, you show them a key light for 10 seconds, let's say, and in the last two seconds you operate the feeder, it's classical conditioning. The bird does not have to peck at the light, but the bird starts pecking at the light. It doesn't get the food any more quickly when it pecks at the light in this kind of situation, though people eventually use this as a way to train animals, a way to train pigeons to peck at light. Um, this is Brown and Jenkins. This was done at McMaster University in Hamilton. Always a big Canadian connection in, in learning animal behavior. Uh, why? I don't know. We're good at this. The first thought was, was this superstitious behavior? Right? We talked about superstitious behavior. The idea here that an animal will do something just because it was the last thing it did before it got reinforced. That was the first explanation. And in fact, a lot of people, my old honors uh, supervisor, Nancy Innes, she told me, because she's a contemporary of these folks, and she said the first thing that she did, when I think she was in grad school still, uh, Duke with John Stadden, when they read this paper, they tried it, and it worked, and they were just blown away, like everybody apparently else was. No one thought this was real. They believed that people did it, they just didn't think that, they thought it was some kind of artifact that they're set up, they try it, works. Everybody says, well, it must be superstitious behavior. <coughs> what the hell else could it be? The only thing in there lit up that they can see is the light. Bird walks towards it, hits its beak on it. Oh, and then, you know, eventually, just by dumb luck alone, a few seconds of elapsed, the food's there. So, yeah, okay, that's, I like that explanation. So, Jenkins and Moore in 1973, again, so same Jenkins, this is again done at Mac. I do believe this was some of these honors thesis. Used high speed film. Today we would use a phone, but they used high speed film. Uh, to get a look at what the form of the response looks like. Because if this has something, if this is something special about when the animal's operating on its environment, even though really it's a classic setup, when the animal's operating on its environment, like it's pecking at something, maybe the, the, the form of the reinforcer changes. So when they showed the form of the reinforcer, the, when it was food, they pecked straight on with their mouths open, mouths, beaks open a little bit. When it was water, they swept at it like they do when they drink water. So uh, pigeons, when they drink, uh, so this is a pigeon face right here. And they do that, and they, they, they swoop it because they can't, you know, they're not dogs. 
right? And they can't use their wings to pick up a glass. So what they do is they bend down. If you ever see a bird drink, they, they kind of, they do peck, but they scoop up the water. And this is what they were, in fact, doing to the key light when it was a water reinforcer. So this was really bizarre, it seemed. Um, so if it is the form of the reinforcer, Ed Wasserman had roughly the same idea uh, in 1973. That's one of my Facebook friends. Um, and Ed's idea, <coughs> is he's got little chicks, little chicks, and he's got a, a, a warping light, you know, like an incubator. And then he's got a speaker that signifies when the warming light's going to be on. Plays a tone, say 10 seconds. I, I can't remember the exact time, but it's roughly the same kind of thing we'd see in these experiments. So it's about 10 seconds and about two seconds of overlap when the heat lamp comes on. The little chickens, little chicks, what they start doing is they start nuzzling up against the speaker. There's no heat coming out of the speaker, but the speaker is signaling food. Uh, sorry, uh, reinforcement in this case, which is heat. Wow. So all of this led Bill Timberlake to come up with the idea. It's funny, I'm the only person in the world when they see Justin Timberlake think of animal behavior. They're not, they're, I don't think they're in relation, but um, perhaps they are. Those are a good guy, and Justin Timberlake seems funny. So. He, he, took, he took some of the, the ethology stuff, you know, the stuff, fixed action patterns, all that. He took that approach to looking at this kind of learning, this what we call auto-training. And he said, look, there are behavior systems. There's a feeding system. There's a sexual system. There's a drinking system. There is a grooming system, etc. And what's happening is, you're making, when you are given a certain kind of reinforcer, you're making certain behaviors more likely. Remember the diagram of the dust bathing system in, in jungle fowl that said, look, when you got the dust, makes dust bathing more likely. Well, what's happening here is you're giving food, you're making eating-like behavior more likely. You then direct your behavior at the, at the stimulus, and what's, what's your behavior going to be? Well, it's going to be the closest, it's going to be the one that's, that's, that's activated, the, the behavior system that's activated. So the nice thing is, this actually predicts what would have happened. Right? It predicts Wasserman, it predicts Jenkins and Moore, and Brown and Jenkins. So it's a nice explanation. And I'm pretty sympathetic to that. I, I, was, I was trained that way, that, you know, look at the animal's biology, uh, rather than just its, its, its learning history. Okay? I always want to say nice things about Bill Timberlake, because the first, author, uh, first paper I ever wrote as, as a sole author, he was the editor of the journal I submitted to, and he was really, really nice to me. So, don't ever say anything bad about him. Not the other word, but I'm just putting it out there. Make sense? I think most clever these, well, these, this is a pretty clever experiment. I think this experiment is pretty clever, too. Right? Because you've got chicks in the daylight. These are in the dark, right? In the daylight. A sound signaling heat. And I think that's an exceedingly clever experiment. All right. So that's just some constraints, and we'll talk 
more there's a special type of comparative cognition that really, which is really all about constraints in some respects. Okay. Now, you could give a reinforcement after every behavior you're interested in making more likely. Right? You certainly could. Um, that's called CRF, or continuous reinforcement. There are lots of acronyms. So CRF, continuous reinforcement. <coughs> Excuse me. This is actually very rarely used. Very rarely used. It actually doesn't behave, maintain behavior very well. <clears throat> um, think about it. We can, if you think about this in terms of, let's think this cognitively for a second. Let's, let's think of the animal as a representation. The animal has learned that every time it Presses a bar, gets food every single time. Bar press food, bar press food, bar press food, bar press food. What is it? What is the animal? What is the animal then going to, to think when it bar presses and gets no food? Well, it's going to think the contingencies have changed because every time I press and I got food, suddenly I don't press and I get food. What's that mean? That means that now it's when I bar press, I don't get any food. Right? If I was giving you a nickel every time you put your hand up, you don't have your hand up all the time because you have piles of nickels and throw a nickel. If I stop giving you a nickel, you probably stop putting your hand up. Right? It makes sense. So this isn't going to behave, uh, sort of maintain behavior very well at all. Think about it if you've got, if, if, if you uh, are around kids at all, if you've got kids or, 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 or you have a little brother or sister, nephew, nephew, whatever, and you are telling them, every time they, they, they read a page of a book, you say, way to go, that's good, glad you're reading. You know, like you get kids, they're about grade two or so, they get this thing, they have to bring home a list, and every day that they read a book, they write down what book they read. Okay? Something kids do. When the kid fills out the sheet each day, you go, oh, that's good, you're another book. You don't stand over their shoulder and go, hey, another word, that's good, that's good, keep going. Yeah, that's good, that's good, that's really good, yeah. You can see why it's not going to maintain behavior. Because as soon as I walk away and go, well, I've got to stop doing this because it's driving me insane, so I'm going to leave now. The kid's like, oh, praise doesn't come anymore. Why? Why should I do it? So you can see how that's not going to maintain behavior. I remember my son John doing that with the reading. It was a great two. And John's office is reading this book about airplanes. He's reading a book called The History of Strategic Bombing. Because he's my kid. And then he looks at me and he says, you know, you know the black buck raids on Argentina in 1982 were the longest air raids ever? Well, they bombers for bombing using this whole story. It's like, yeah, I didn't know that. It's weird that you do too. <laughs> but I didn't stand there the whole time. Keep breathing, keep breathing, keep breathing. Right? It's not going to maintain behavior as soon as I stop. So what do we do? We get reinforcement on schedule. So the, the most 
Here's one, here's a few more. I'm going to go with, I'm going to tell you four really common ones, and then I'm going to tell you two kind of uncommon ones. I can also tell you that there is a book you can read that is called Schedules of Reinforcement by Furster and Skinner, 1957. It's that thick, and it's a horribly boring thing. Because it's just a list of schedules of reinforcement. Like, yeah, I swear there's ones in there like, and then if you it's like if it's Thursday, like it's just it's too much. Fixed interval. Okay, here's that cumulative record I was talking about. See, the, the paper's moving along and the pen goes up. And in fact, as I said, even if you're using a computer output nowadays, you would still want this because everyone's been trained to think like looking at these cumulative records. So it goes along and that little line there is when the reinforcement happens. This is how the pen resets and goes back to the bottom. So times along here, number of reinforcements cumulatively is along, is, is along the uh, y-axis. So the, this is when the first response, the fixed interval is when the first response after a given interval is rewarded. So an FY10 is a fixed interval, meaning the first response after 10 seconds of responding is rewarded. It's not that every 10 seconds the animal is rewarded. That's actually uh, classical conditioning, isn't it? Right? Because that's 10 seconds on, give you food. Don't have to do anything. This is starts and start the clock, and the first response after 10 seconds, you get food. Animals eventually, of course, start responding right around 10 seconds because they learned it. They should respond right around 10 seconds because that's what the food is. Right? So they're coming along here. Notice they hardly peck at all. You can do, assuming these are pigeons. I think in pigeons, that's what they would Assuming these are pigeons, they're hardly pecking at all, hardly pecking at all. Then it gets close to the time, they peck like crazy. This gives us a pattern of responding we call the FI scallop. Um, I think because that kind of looks like a scallop shell, that's the only thing I can think of. And that scallops are delicious. It's also because of the deliciousness of scallops. <laughs> It's the only thing, I mean, it must be. You know, like, because you know what a scallop shell looks like? It looks like, you know, Shell gas station? That's a scallop shell. Okay, now you've learned something today. Something even more useful than the rest of this course. So, that kind of thing on the shell, I think that's the scallop. That's always been my guess. No one's ever explained it to me. It was always like, that's a scallop shape. No, it's not. Scallops are round, and you sear each side, and you eat them. And they're delicious. This should tell us something. Don't think like a Skinnerian. Don't, please don't ever. So don't think like Skinner or Watson. Don't think if we're just looking at behavior, because they were. They would just say, look, we got this scallop shape. That's right, we're done. Next schedule. What, what are we doing next? But what does this tell you about the animal, the animal's uh, behavior? What does this tell you about, let's say, a pigeon that would do this perfectly? By the way, this is after acquisitions done. This, all these things are done. We're, we're at Asintone here. They're, they're totally learned it. Does this tell you anything about a pigeon? Or a rat, because the pigeon looks the same, if you prefer rats. Danny? It might match their actual feeding behavior system in the Inquire. sense of general and full searches for food, because it just seems that. Yeah, you think it's coming, it's coming at exactly the same time all the time? Probably not, right? It's probably not coming 10 seconds, 10 seconds, 10 seconds, 10 seconds. That's a neat guess. Um, and you're getting at something there. You're close. You're close. 
What's it tell you about, okay, I'll make it easier. What's it tell you about the abilities of rats and pigeons? <coughs> and every other species ever tested doing this. What can they do? Well, they can eat, that's clearly they can eat. Yeah, please, digit. Tell time. Dude, they can keep track of time. And pretty accurately, look at this. It's exactly right. Skinner would have hated that. But he's dead and you can't, you can't find us. They can, they can keep track of time. That's actually pretty impressive. Because they, their peak responding happens right there. You know anything we can do? <coughs> we can just uh, stop reinforcing them for a few trials. Every so often we get no reinforcement. And then we take a look at the trials where there's no reinforcement, and we sum them all together, and we get this beautiful set of responding. It looks like that, right around where the F5 was. We know it's called a peak procedure when you do these, these empty trials and you find out where their peak time of responding was. Uh, you do that through, uh, you can either solve the equation here, uh, or you can do it through linear interpolation, which is what people usually do. And the peak place, peak time of responding equals the FI. And this is true in rats. This is, so that was uh, Warren Neck's work and Seth Roberts way back in the day. This is true in pigeons, a lot of them have Roberts, Ken Chang. This is true in black-capped chickadees, a lot of people, well, only one person has done that, well, three people, uh, Broadback, Hampton, and Chang. Um, this is true in honeybees. This is Boisvert's work. There's all kinds of really cool stuff here where what you're doing is you're testing the animal's ability to keep track of time. The cool thing that happens here, if this is 10 seconds, so, so 30 is going to be 20, 30. So now for FI20, let's go a little lower. Let's go more like that. Whoops, not so skewed, idiot. And then for 30, they're still peaking at the right place, but the spread okay, of these distributions is proportional to the time. In other words, the errors the animals are making in timing are proportional to the amount they're trying to keep track of. So there is error in their clock, which you would expect. But the error is symmetrical, and the error is proportional to the amount of elapsed time they're keeping track of. This is exactly the same thing that happens with how bright is that light, how does that noise? How much does this weigh? It's actually Weber's law, which is a fundamental thing in perception. That is really neat. And in fact, if you take these figures, the mathematically sophisticated among them, if you transform this to have this peak, it just falls right on top of this one. You transform this to have this peak, it falls right on top of that. It's really, really cool. Uh, the neat thing about this also is that with there's a tiny model which we might get into later. 
we can now account for 99.999% of the variance in timing behavior in animals. Much of that work done by Les Church, Ken Chang, John Crystal. Uh, there is cool, exciting work going on now. Now, of course, Skinner, we're going to talk about timing animals, don't you grab the time, we're going to look at the behavior, you can look at the other path. Because that's how Skinner talked, kind of like a dumb guy. Oh, we didn't. But we still use these techniques. This is old-fashioned crap. <laughs> but we still can use it to do really cool, neat new science. Really cool. We can do things. We could give an animal drugs and then see how it affects its internal clock. Guys that took uh, neuropharmacology last year know I would always say, well, it affects FI responding. So we know that it's doing uh, X, Y, or Z to the animal's internal clock. It's speeding up and slowing down. Right? As you might guess, stimulants speed up the clock. Depressants slow it down. Marijuana doesn't change, speed it up or slow it down, just makes more errors. My friend John does this work, John Crystal does this work with, with rats. He gives them tetrahydrocannabinol. So he gets rats high. Well, I mean, you know, it's not like he, he gives them little, little rat bones. <laughs> is the error symmetrical? The error is symmetrical, but the error is bigger. It is symmetrical, yes. Yeah, it's really easy. So just saying, they make more mis they just make bigger mistakes. But the neat thing is, they're not making bigger mistakes, they're making just as many too slow as many too fast. So their time doesn't change. Whereas like with almost everything else, it moves somewhere. Pretty neat. So again, we wouldn't, back in Skinner's day, no one would have mentioned that because that would be heresy. You'd have to go to jail because you couldn't predict an earthquake. You heard about that, by the way? Yeah, yeah you should be disgusted. Just saying. In Italy, these, these geologists didn't predict an earthquake. So they are now apparently guilty of manslaughter. Six years. Six years, yeah. yeah. Remember, these are, this is the same country that put Galileo in prison. These are not, you know, but you thought maybe 500 years later, maybe a little bit of. It seems to me it's time for Ezio to show up and do some missions. A little Assassin's Creed reference. God? Okay. That's just, by the way, creep you out. So if you're a scientist, just keep your, you can't just even keep your mouth shut. You've just got to go around yelling random shit and hope something's right. And then you won't get put in prison in Italy. They do a lot of stuff right in Italy. They got, they got food down pretty good. Right? No, I'm not serious. One of the world's great cuisines. They, they got food down. A lot of other stuff they seem confused about. A friend of mine who's Italian said, oh, it's apparently okay to shoot people in the street for the mafia, but don't not say anything if you're a scientist. It's a little creepy. I'm just saying. I'm very disturbed. I'm very upset by that. Like medieval times. Without the cool armor and stuff. You know? So we can use this stuff today. Oh, anybody understand, understand this? Questions about the FI? So remember, if the animal waits 15 minutes and it has a reply, reply, yeah, reply, that responded, it's still an FI 10 seconds. 
It's the experimenter that sets up the schedule, not the animal. The animal has the animal's operating its but it's not setting the schedule. So that's up to the animal to respond, but even if it takes 20 minutes to respond, it's still an FI10 because it's like the first response after 10 seconds would be reinforced. Okay, so you gotta keep that in your head. I know it's kind of weird because you're thinking, well, wouldn't that be it? No, it wouldn't be an FI10 minutes. It's still an FI10 seconds because the, first, the, the gear, those relay racks, is set up such that the first response after 10 seconds, the animal gets fed. Okay. Well, we can mess with this and do a variable interview. It's like an FI, but it just varies when a given average, and now the scale goes away. And again, cognitively, this makes complete sense. Well, of course it goes away. The end, it can't predict what time it's going to happen. So it might be that it's like, let's say it was a VI 10, variable little 10 would be like 10 seconds, then 8 seconds, and 14 seconds, and 6 seconds, and 12 seconds, and 18 seconds, and 2 seconds, and 1 second, and 19 seconds. And if I did that all properly, the average is 10 seconds. And if it isn't, look, it was supposed to be 10 of all those numbers. So the animal can't predict anymore, and now it's just nice, steady response. Yeah, then you looked like you were. I was just going to say exactly what kind of learning is going on there. Learn that you should heck. Yeah, because you never know when it's going to. You never know. Just continue. You just never know. So you're not going to get the see what the animal does here. Is it takes a it takes a little break. Well, why, why heck here? It's not going to get reinforced. It's reinforcing after ten seconds. Here it's like. It can be reinforced. Look, there's two that are really close together here, and there's two that are really far apart. Um, you've got to do this. When you do this, when you train animals up to do this kind of stuff, you really need a long. Um, you have to have sometimes you have really long intervals, and sometimes they're very short. So people use different distributions. Sometimes people we just use random numbers. Uh, some people use a logarithmic distribution, so they say a whole bunch of really of really long ones, a few really short ones. There's a lot of ways you can go. When you would do this with that gear, you would have a little tape with hole punched in it, and every time the stepper went, um, if, it, if it came to a little hole, it would then give reinforcement. So you'd actually set it up that way, how much time or how much, you know. But um, now with the computer, you could just say, just do a random number generator. Alright, so that's the VI. We want to get nice steady responding, but use that. <coughs> then it's the fixed ratio. There's the reinforcement is given after a number of responses, and it's the ratio of responses to reinforcers. And you get a little less of a smooth set of responding here. Let's say if it's an FR10, that's the first response. Oh, the tenth, every tenth response gets reinforced. It's interesting that the animals take a post-reinforcement pause there, isn't it? Okay. Why do you think they do that? Any guess? So they can count, yeah. Some sort of numerical ability. But why do they take a pause? 
If I know it's going to be 10, why don't I just get going and get back on the horse and do 10 more pats? Not that there's an actual horse in the experiment. Because they know they don't need to, as much effort into it to get the... No, see, I don't know. It seems to me that doing this many pecs in this much time is more effort than if I just spread it out to here. Why is it in steady state? These are good guesses, by the way. Don't feel bad. Any ideas? Who's the plus? It's called the post-grade portion of the plus. Yeah, what do you got? Uh, I'm thinking it might be superstition. Hmm. How? Explain that. In that uh, when the animal starts, he's not sure what to do, so he might just not do anything and start pecking. So oh, I see. So it's when at the very beginning of training. Yeah. I've never heard that explanation. The thing is, this is all done when they're really, they've learned this completely. So they're really good at it. They might have been doing this for 30 or 40 days. They always take a pause. Need explanation. Other thoughts? I always figured they were taking a break. I'm serious. I've packed a whole bunch. I'll just take a little break and I'll start packing again. Um, it turns out, however, that that's not what they're doing because if that was the case, right? If that was the case, if it was an FR 300 here, they should take a really long pause here, shouldn't they? It's like, oh man, I just packed 300 times. I'm gonna. Eat is sore. I've got to rest for a while. Actually, it's the schedule that they're on now. So a bigger schedule, like a bigger ratio, say 300, they get a bigger pause than if they're on FR10. And we know that by what you do is you just switch the schedule back and forth. The animals learn what schedules which. And it's that for some reason, and I still don't know why. Whenever schedule is active is the one they're responding to completely. In other words, it also controls how big the post reinforcement pauses. So if you go from a, a 10 to a 300, when they're on the 300 big pause, when they're on the 10 small pause, it's interesting, so after 300 pecs, so my theory's wrong. After 300 pecs, if they're going over to 10, it's a really short pause. After 10 pecs, they're going to 300, they take a really long pause. Seems odd to me. Doesn't see what I would do, but I'm not a pigeon. Speak pigeon. You think of any? Okay, actually, before I say that, um, let's finish up the three schedule, four schedules. Variable ratio, this is after a varying number of responses. This is where you get really steady state responding. Look at the beautiful, look at the slope of that, nice and high, steady state responding, no close reinforcement pause, because you don't know when it's coming, man. You never know when it's going to happen. Can anybody think, let's think these four schedules now. Fixed interval, variable interval, fixed ratio, variable ratio. Think of things in daily life and tell me what schedule they are. Paycheck is fixed interval? Yeah, it kind of is. Because you're paid every, say, two weeks. Yeah. And assuming, a little, little, little factor out the fact that if you're sick, you're still paid. <coughs> well, at least where I work. Um, if you're working hour to hour, it's different. But it's the first response after a given period of time. Yeah, that's probably fixed interval. You can 
maybe make an argument that it's fixed ratio, but I think fixed interval is probably better. Yeah, because you get paid typically on a schedule of every two weeks, or I know we get paid on the 15th and the last day of the month. Things like that. Other thoughts? That's a good one. Pretty, that's a sort of classic. What are some, what's something else that looks like one of these schedules? Fixed interval is, is, is a good one for, for uh, studying and the reinforcement is test. People don't study, they don't study, they don't study, they test, go study, 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 study. Whereas variable interval is pop quiz classes. If you've got a class that has pop quizzes, doesn't Dwayne do that? Doesn't Dwayne do pop quizzes and stats, I think? I think he does. Yes. And I think, and the point of doing that, and it's the point of anybody doing that is, well, first thing it does is it makes people come to class. But the nice thing it does is it makes sure people are always working and always doing their reading, because you never know. You never know. I used to, when I taught 2127 back in the 90s, it was a long time ago, uh, I used to use in-class assignments, and you never knew when they were going to happen. I knew when they were going to happen. They were going to happen when I was short on material. <laughs> but I mean, it was early days, and I just started doing the job. I wasn't good enough yet at drawing five slides out into an hour and a half. It's a skill you learn after a while. Remember when I first gave Dwayne my, my slides actually for stats, and he listened to the lecture because I gave him the way to the podcast, he said. We had one slide there for 45 minutes, and you talked just the whole time. How did you do that? I said, well, son, <laughs> just practice. What else? Give me some other ones. I got a classic example here. But I don't know what maybe somebody's going to have. But anything else you think? Yeah, Debbie, that's all. I was just going to say it's, it's the, um, the reward itself. It's getting the reinforcer. Is it, I don't know, increases the response to get the expectancy rate of it. I'm sorry, I'm following. I know. Okay. Okay, <laughs> okay, don't worry about it. <laughs> don't worry about it. Ideas. Something else you see in daily life that maybe you don't do, you see others do, could be. You ever watch anybody play slot machines at the casino? <coughs> or if you've been to Eastern Canada, you know, in a corner store. Well, it's Vegas, in a bar. What do they do? Play, 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 or buy lottery tickets. Because you never know when you're going to win. You don't. And every so often you do. And in fact, it's set up, you know, uh, in fact, by law, in, in, in jurisdictions where there are, where there is gambling, they make all, you know, it's, it's pretty tightly controlled. And there actually is a payoff rate for slot machines. Well, there has to be. And it's basically a variable ratio schedule. Okay. Xbox Live machines are a variable ratio schedule. I told you about that the other day when I was talking to the guy that developed that, and we were laughing, and I said, it's a, it's a variable, he said, yes, ratio schedule. That's exactly what I was doing. We're trying to get people to keep playing games. 
really good video game that you like, you don't always get reinforced what's reinforcing in a video game, what, what, what keeps you playing. Uh, it could be leveling up, right? It could be finding, it could be killing a bad guy. <coughs> it's somewhat unpredictable. John Hobson wrote a book called Behavioral Game Design, and he totally used schedules of reinforcement to explain how to write games that are, for lack of a better word, addictive. Anybody else think of anything here? Yeah, I, I think here, you know, when you're in school or something, read 10 books and you get a sticker. Things like that. You know there's a prize coming. Is cooking an example of that part? How? You put in effort, you cook food, and then you get the reward after a certain amount of effort. Hmm. It'd be interesting to see. I can see where you're going. What schedule would that be on? Um, I wonder if it took longer. Do you get... Is it more of a ratio or, or uh, sorry, fixtures, variable? It's hard to say. It's hard to say there. Hmm. At least you justify the pause by eating it. That's right. <laughs> and see, that's the thing. A lot of people said that the post reinforcement pause is taking time to eat, things like that. And if that was the case, in fact, the post reinforcement pause always would say, like, it isn't. But it's interesting. You can think of a lot of things in daily life that conform to these four basic schedules. Right? And like I said, think about, think about any behavior that looks like this. Don't necessarily think that reinforcement feels good. Right? Because tests reinforce study behavior. Please. Why is gambling variable ratio and not fixed ratio? If you're saying that they give money out every... You know, yeah, but it's, it's, it's not... Um, they don't give money out every tenth spin. They give money out on average every tenth spin. Okay. Right? That's okay. what it's... And of course, if we knew what the ratio was, if it was fixed, you would just stand there until someone did nine, you'd knock them over, you'd push the button, and you'd take the money, right? Good question. Uh, typically, by the way, those in each machine, obviously, those ratios are closely guided trade secrets. Closely guided trade secrets. Trade secrets. They have to be. Because if I knew it, I could sit there over time and figure out what the schedule was. Right. And then I would figure out how likely it was another reinforcement was coming, and you know, things like that. Right. Unlike people that think they have systems to play slot machines. Are there systems to play other games that involve skills, say like poker or blackjack? Yes, there are systems. It's called knowing how to play the game properly and knowing a little probability. Or perhaps carrying cards. Yeah, one for good, two for bad. Right, man? Nobody. But. There is no system for a game that is like roulette or a slot machine. There can't be a system. There cannot be. Without hacking the thing. Right? Or the lottery. There's no system for the lottery. That's when you hear people that say, oh, I've won four times. This guy's won four times and oddly enough owns a corner store. Um, so schedules are actually pretty interesting things. Again, when you think about it, a lot of our behavior, the most cognitively complicated animal on this planet, 
except for Dwayne. These caught the only part of them. Would it be funnier if I said it properly? Waste powder for A lot of these schedules actually, a lot of our behavior looks like these schedules. And a lot of the rewards, reinforcements, no problem that happen come on schedules. So, you know, when you look at a lot of things, you can see that our behavior is governed by these schedules reinforcement. I would not go into the scenario thing and say it's almost all like that, but a lot of it is, a lot of our behavior is. Right? A couple things, variable schedules are more robust, and that makes sense, they're more unpredictable. And again, if you want to think about this cognitively, they're just more unpredictable. Not unlike Wayne. Now, there's something called the pre, partial reinforcement extinction effect. This is all, all these schedules, anything other than CRF, is called, a, uh, it's called partial reinforcement. Because you are reinforcing after every single response. So it's partial reinforcement. It's a lot harder to extinguish, say, VIFR, uh, 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 FI, and VI schedules than CRF. Now, when you think about it, this makes a great deal of sense because basically the animals learned that after every in CRF, the animals learned that after every reinforcement, it gets every behavior gets reinforced, and suddenly you get one lack of reinforcing, like you get one empty trial, and you don't respond anymore. Well, if you think about this kind of in the swirl of Wagnerian terms, the animal's pretty surprised, right? And it's going to learn a lot. I mean, I mean you, you can't use the Rosfolo Wagner model to do instrumental conditioning, but the idea of you learn a lot when you get surprised makes some sense generally. The animals are pretty surprised when it gets nothing and right away stops responding very quickly. The animal isn't surprised. The difference between expected value and actual value, actual outcome, are, are negligible in a variable schedule if you suddenly have nothing. Right? So this is one of these things, this is funny, because people talk about the partial reinforcement extinction effect for years. I do believe that Mike Damian's book goes into great detail about the partial reinforcement extinction effect. And you know what my explanation is? Well, yeah, of course. You know, the difference between the outcome and the expected is so large that the animal stops responding. The animal learns very quickly that the contingencies have changed. But it's just a surprise and Maybe that's too cognitive. <coughs> Here's one that's hard to get animals to do. DRL, differential reinforcement for low rates of responding. So let's say you get reinforced for doing small amounts of responding. So one response every 10 seconds. If you do two, you don't get reinforced. Well, it's pretty, if you think of this from a, from a biological standpoint, it's pretty damn obvious why this is hard to teach an animal. Um, is, nature doesn't work such that if you do less, you get more. It just doesn't work that way. Right? 
So that's this is really, when you think about it, this is one of those constraints kind of issues. You, can you teach animal this? Yes. <coughs> yes. But it's hard. Uh, this has been used, in fact, uh, in drug studies. Showing something called behavioral tolerance. Behavioral tolerance is when there's tolerance that's, um, I mean, of course, it's all in the nervous system, but there's tolerance based on, you know, releasing less neurotransmitter, that kind of thing. But there's also behavioral tolerance such that, for example, drunks that are, the people that drink all the time are better drunk drivers than people that just drink not that often and drive drunk. I'm not saying you should practice. <coughs> I'm saying that with, with practice, you get better. So what do we do? We train animals on amphetamine, and we give them this. First we give them amphetamine, they use amphetamine, then we treat, uh, try to train them up to DRL. You can do that. On the other hand, if you've trained animals to DRL, and then you give them amphetamine, they're screwed. Right? So suddenly you've got rats that are full of, full of meth, and they can't not spawn, because they're full of meth. Yes, it's the strangest episode ever of Breaking Bad. <coughs> so it's actually been used in drug studies to show behavioral. It was one of the real uh, sort of breakthrough things in looking at behavioral tolerance. And if you take neuro, uh, neuropharmacology next year, like next year, literally, actually, really, 2014, you will hear all about DRH is a weird one too. This is differential rates of responding, a differential reinforcement for high rates of responding. Okay, you've got to peck 10 times in the next two seconds. It just seems mean to me. I'm sorry that wasn't enough. <laughs> this is a little easier to train though, because nature does kind of work that way. The harder you work, the more stuff you get. <coughs> Okay, what can we do with these things? Well, if we're trying to explain complex behavior, there may be multiple, in fact, right now in your life, there are multiple schedules of reinforcement going on, right? We can do concurrent schedules and chain schedules. Now, concurrent schedule is when that two schedules operate at once. So we've got, let's say, so you got two key lights, and here, this one here is on an FR10. <coughs> And this one here, we'll put it on FR20. So that's concurrent schedules. Chain schedules are, you know, it's an FR10, reinforcement, an FR20, reinforcement, an FR10, reinforcement. So this isn't like response chains, right? Which was remember that was a schedule, then a schedule, then a schedule, then reinforcement. This is a schedule, reinforcement, then another schedule, reinforcement. They say schedule three, reinforcement, and that's schedule one, reinforcement. Our lives are full of concurrent schedules. There's all kinds of things going on at the same time. Think about even just separate classes, right? You've got concurrent schedules because in each class you've got different times you have tests, and test taking reinforces studying behavior. So you've got different amounts of studying you do in each class depending upon when tests are coming, right? The interesting thing, and I noted this when I talked about the post-reinforcement pause, the behavior follows the schedule in effect at that time. So if we're doing chain schedules, the schedule at 
that time is acting is what it's going to, what the paper's going to look like. So you get a long post reinforcement pause if you're at an FR, say an FR 300, compared to an FR 20. As I said here, this is what allowed people to determine that the post reinforcement pause in FR schedules is due to the present schedule and not to the previous one. And being due to the previous one is what, to me, I always found intuitively pleasing. And the only problem is, of course, it's completely and utterly wrong. And now I'll be put in jail in Italy. is like this. By the way, what do you think an animal does in this case here? You have an FR10 and an FR20. What are you going to do? You're a pigeon. What do you do? How do you, what's your behavior? What would you do? You make the call. Say two seconds of access to mixed grain and stitches. So it's the same quality reinforcer complete. You had an idea, Mike? That was what I was going to ask, but I was thinking if that's the case now, then the FR10 is what it should do. It's intuitively pleasing, isn't it? Why, yeah. why spend 20 minutes? Yeah, except that's not at all what they did. And you would think they did. You know what they actually do? They match their behavior to the rate of reinforcement. Called the matching law. It was discovered by Hernstein, a student of uh, Skinner. And what they do is they'll do twice as many, well, we get in a unit time, or, or, or sort of, yeah, unit time, whatever. There's a two to one ratio of reinforcement here, right? Right? Make sense? So you get a two to one ratio of pecking. So for every two pecks of the FR10, we do one peck of the FR20. That is weird, wild stuff. And in fact, we know uh, that the matching law holds up with everything that's ever been tested. It would hold up with you, too. Where does this come from? Biologically, where does this come from? Well, animals tend to test hypotheses. That's what they do, right? We do it too. How does the world work? How does the world work? And keep testing stuff out. So they do peck a little bit over here. Just not as much. They're always testing. And in fact, what's, what's the extra effort here? It's a peck. These two things are beside each other. Would they get more reinforcement if they just stayed here? They might. 
they would depend over time, they'd probably get the same. But yeah, over time they would probably get the same. But that sounds like unnecessary delayed gratification. Yeah, it does. But what do you, there's a way to stop this behavior, and that's what, between the two uh, lights in the, in the Skinner box, you put a great big barrier. Now, if they're going to pack here, they have to walk all the way back over here to do a pack. They stop, they just completely, they, at the beginning, they get, like I said, they kind of test hypotheses, but after a while, it's like, dude, this is not worth it over here. This place sucks. Let's go back to that other place. It's a solid barrier, so they can't. Yeah, a solid barrier, they can't. Or, or you can make it a behavioral barrier. So you put in what's called a switch key. So you put, a, there's a third key in the middle, and you have to peck in a couple of times before you switch. No problem. Again, uh, it's like switching over now makes it stop, stops making sense. Okay. Especially if you make that switch key um, a big long amount of time. Or if, when they switch, lights, both lights go up for a while. And they sort of choose to switch because they put a key in the choice. Oh, now I'm going to switch over. Turn the lights up for a while. Both lights up for a while. But when you have two things in front of you, you will do it at a two to one ratio. Right? So if you like, if, if you like, like, like uh, I don't know, ribeye steaks twice as much as mashed potatoes, you'll still eat your mashed potatoes. You'll just eat the, the, the ribeye twice as fast. It's not a very good example, but I was thinking about steak. I'm often thinking about steak. It's just one of the things that I do. Delicious dead animal flesh. Alright. So that's actually kind of cool and a little counterintuitive. But it turns out, in fact, you know what the neat thing is? I can give drugs in doses that have twice as much dose, and I get twice as much responding from one key, one bar price to the other. If you look at human behavior on people that take that have drug problems, their behavior pretty clearly matches the matching law. So they'll do some things that are reinforcing their lives, but they'll spend more time at the, you know, ultimately reinforcing things, which is, you know, operating opiate receptors in your nucleus accumbens. That feels great. And you can get that from heroin. Awesome. It's pretty neat. So again, it starts to get more complicated, but, and not, well, I guess it probably was partially what these guys were doing when they were the earlier sort of behaviorist operant conditioning guys. They're saying, look, most behavior is governed by these rules, and we can model this. And they, they found that. So that's kind of cool. It's kind of, you know, internal logic. Um, a lot of these techniques now are used extensively uh, with people with autism. Extensively. So, one of the first things you're going to do... Now, I, I, uh, my son is autistic, but he's pretty high-functioning and he's um, very social. He's very social. Somewhat inappropriately social because he doesn't understand it very well, but he's still social. Like he wants to meet people, he wants to talk to people, he enjoys that. He does sometimes talk to people he's never met and ask them what kind of car they drive. <laughs> what kind of vehicle do you have? Everybody was in swimming lessons, he looks at the swimming teacher at the end because the whole time John's sitting there, can I ask him what kind of car he has? I said, no, 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 listen. You can ask him again. So it ends, 
John walks over and goes, what kind of vehicle do you have? And I looks at it, this nine-year-old kid says, I have a red truck. I said, dude, you need way, he needs way more information than that. Because John has the ability to just look at a car and tell you the make and model in here. It's just something you can do. So John's very, um, and it's very social, but some, people, some kids aren't social at all. Right? So I'm just kids aren't social at all. More severe, um, they don't look their little anybody in the eye. It's hard for autistic people to look people in the eye in general because it, it, it confuses them. This is the guess. Because we talk to high-functioning people, looking someone in the eye and we're looking at their face confuses them. They start concentrating on that and they can't understand speech anymore because it's hard doing more than one thing at the same time. But it might be nice if your kid smiled, looked at your eye, looked in the eye and smiled at you now and then. It might be nice if in class, someone did something appropriate rather than inappropriate. Right? Sat still, put your hand up to ask questions, all that good stuff. So what's done here is prompts are given. So the therapist will actually say, or in fact, depending on how verbal the person is, might actually take them and raise their hand to show them what the behavior is. Those prompts eventually have to fade away. The person can't always have a therapist with them all their life showing them that they should raise their hand and say. So what you do is you do the prompting, but it fades away. And a lot of times what you're using here are secondary reinforcers. Um, with a lot of people with more severe autism than my son has, you end up with a case where they don't want contact with other people. It's unpleasant. Uh, John likes hugs and all that stuff, so it's different, but a lot of people don't. So, the first thing you might want to use is candy, M&M's. Or a lot of this original work that was done was it was a spoonful of ice cream. Because who doesn't like ice cream? There isn't anybody. It's delicious. It's so delicious that I can't have it in my house. Um, because, and that's not gone, that's me. I just eat it till it's gone. Do you eat the ice cream? No. And I'm sitting there with a horrible headache and my face is covered in ice cream and I'm holding a spoon. Wasn't me. But you pair that, the secondary reinforcer, you pair that with a hug from mom or dad. So now the hug becomes a secondary reinforcer. And now the hug, and who doesn't want to hug their kid? And somebody who's never got a hug from their own kid before, and now they're getting it, that's just an added side benefit. So now when the kid does something that you want, you give him a hug, that's reinforcing. And the beautiful thing is you don't do it after every, because you think, well, that would be weird. You'd have to walk around the rest of the kid's life hugging them every time you say, no, that's CRF. That won't work. You want to do it on a variable ratio. You want to make it a really long ratio because you want to maintain the behavior. So now and then when the kid does the right thing, you give them a hug. Just like you do with your kids normally. Just like you do with normal kids. Yeah, I said normal. Doesn't bother me. So this is actually, this, the, the, the changes that can be made in someone's life are huge. This can take someone who looks like they would never ever be able to hold down a job, never be able to move out of their parents' house, and it can turn them into somebody who's a pretty cool functioning member of society that's just a little weird. 
right? Just a bit of a weird kid, weird guy, right? That's all. Instead of somebody who is completely off in their own world, not interacting with other people, and as I said, not holding down a job, let's say. Okay? So it's actually it's, a, it's an incredibly useful technique. This what's called applied behavior analysis. Questions about that stuff? Like I said, we've been lucky. John's pretty, um, <clears throat> he's very verbal. And I can just tell him something's wrong and he won't do it or tell him he's done the right thing and he'll do it. You know, within reason, he's 11, so he doesn't do everything you ask him. Because if he did, then it'd be just, that'd be weird too. That'd be weird too. Sure. But behavior has consequences. Like the other day, he took Isabel's cell phone and dialed 911. That was bad. He won't be doing that again. Because suddenly there's no Xbox for a week. No PlayStation for a week. No Netflix for a week. He walks around saying this. I'm being punished Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Is it for all months? I said, no, it's just this week. It's just this week. It's just this week. He was texting me. I was in London. Then he says, I'm not punished tomorrow. I said, I think you are. I think you are. No. I said, I'm going to ask mom. He said, no, don't. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I've, I've worked it out. Everything's fine. So. Right? But doing the right thing, I am amazed. Uh, and of course, this is this sort of using also the, the uh, setting as, as sort of almost an occasion center. I've watched it in school compared to what he's like at home. At school, he does not run around at full speed yelling, which he will do at home. He goes, hey, come out. Again, he's an 11-year-old boy. But I see him in school. He's sitting there at his desk, puts his hand up, asks questions. He was just elected the student council. I don't know what kind of... He ran on a platform of uh, pajama day. <laughs> uh, bring a stuffed animal to school day. And it was one other day, and apparently it was a land. So he's now, he's now polling five points ahead of Mitt Romney in Michigan. Uh, he had binders full of ideas. <laughs> And that's a Rasmussen poll, too. So, I mean, it's really skewed for the Republican. That is really, I wait way, way too many polling websites. Anyway, there's also token economies. These aren't done so much anymore because people worry about people's rights. I'm a member of Amnesty International. I really care about people's rights. It's important to me. Like, give money to the money. Well, I think about giving money. No, I'm going to give money to the money. Um... The idea here, this was used a lot in prison situations. It was also used in, in psychiatric hospitals. Not so much anymore, because apparently it violates people's rights. <coughs> the notion here was, look, you've got people that have social problems, too. They're, people in psychiatric hospitals very often don't get along with others well. Same with prison. So what do you want to do? You want to reinforce good behavior. What do you do? You give them poker chips. You set a client, and then they can buy stuff in the store, right? So let's say somebody's schizophrenic. What's one of the typical problems with schizophrenia is uh, social awkwardness and inappropriate social behavior. So every time someone smiles at someone coming at them, 
Give him a poker chair. Excuse me. And maybe finally the wrong thing. But that doesn't work really as well as just giving them the poker chips for the right thing. And they can then exchange them, and up until about 20 years ago, almost solely for cigarettes. Um, but, you know, for TV time, for, for extra time playing ping pong, for uh, chocolate bars and what have you. It's also used in prisons. As I said, it not used, now in prison, they, they pay. And they don't get paid well. You know, prison isn't fun. From what I hear, I'm not been. But I'm guessing it's not a good time. Yeah. Is an economy like your voucher um, reinforcements? Yeah, it's the same kind of idea. Yeah, you're giving, you're giving something that you can eventually trade, right? There's all kinds of industrial organizational applications of this, of these techniques. This is giving reinforcement to workers. Um, this is finding, for example, that people work better when you give them breaks, because the breaks reinforce working behavior, which is interesting, right? So if you've worked for half an hour and you get a break, in fact, what happens is, and that's a, that's a fixed interval, right? You get a five-minute break every hour, every two hours, every three hours, whatever. People end up working harder right near the end there. That's what you need. Or you can do something like, for example, um, reward people for giving ideas. Right? And what do you do? You tell them, look, if you have an idea that's going to save you money, whatever, you will get part of the benefit. You will get part of the savings. We'll pass it on to you. Right? And this is, this is done often now in companies where if they, a suggestion is given and the suggestion makes sense and it, it actually saves the company money, the person who made the suggestion gets some of the money. Not just the company gets it. Because look, if I had a great idea, and I'm working at, um, I don't know, working at GM, and I got this great idea to be more efficient, and it's like, well, all that's going to do is make GM more money. And unless I own GM stock, which I, maybe I don't, I don't care. But if I'm told, if you give an idea, we're going to, if we save a million dollars, you get half a million dollars. And that's actually done in a lot of big companies now. Now, what does it do? It, it reinforces a whole lot of bad ideas, too. A whole lot of ideas come in. But people, who's going to have the ideas about having to be more efficient? People that work on the assembly lines, right? That's who's, who's going to know. Um, American Airlines has, has just changed their system such that this is an idea the employee had. Very simple one. Instead of big flight manuals, they now carry iPads. The fuel costs are going to save them like $12 million next year because of all the flights they run, they have to carry these great big flight manuals. It's just an iPad. I think they carry two in case the battery dies on one of them. You know, I don't want to go, well, we're screwed. My battery's dead. <coughs> Planes crashing. Don't know what to do. Oh, man, I was playing Angry Birds all this time. <laughs> you know, so I want them to have two iPads, at least. But these kind of techniques are used. And this is going to reinforce the behavior. So a lot of these things that on the surface just look like, oh, that's a decent idea. It actually makes complete sense in terms of learning theory. Right? And as I mentioned before, uh, John Hobson's book, Behavioral Game Design, 
It's like a Bible for video game designers. And it's totally written by a guy who's an experimental psychologist who's an expert actually in this stuff, Animal Time. That's his thing. And then he went to work for Microsoft. It was funny the time that we were hanging out a little bit. Him and I were talking, and it got off to talking about the peak procedure in Animal Time and Vapor's Law and the rest of the people were getting game designers. Kind of All right, so what's the list of stuff? Don't bother me with your dream about a million dollars, babe, and you. You've read about it and that UFOs have landed here.
podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.